Welcome to Cyberbytes, the podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cooper, co-founder of Aspiron Search. Today, we have a very special guest introducing Tom Kemp, who is a Silicon Valley-based author, entrepreneur, investor, and policy advisor. Tom was the founder and CEO of Centrify, a leading cybersecurity cloud provider that amassed over 2,000 enterprise customers, including 60% of the Fortune 50, and achieved over 100 million annual revenue by the time he exited. This is not one to be missed. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Good stuff. Are you uh, in headquarters at the moment in Palo Alto? Where are you in the world? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, based here in the Bay Area and uh, just uh, down the road from Stanford. Oh, nice. Nice. Did you go to Stanford or? No, I went to the University of Michigan. So I, I grew up in the, the Midwestern part of the U.S. And then uh, right after college, I uh, moved uh, out here to California and uh, been here ever since. Wow, how, how it happens, right? Well, look, Tom, for, for those that don't know who you are, um, if you wouldn't mind just giving the audience uh, an introduction of who you are and how you've got into, into the security industry. Absolutely. So I'm a Silicon Valley-based entrepreneur, investor, and policy advisor. And most recently, I was the founder and CEO of Centrify Corporation. It's a $100 million-plus cybersecurity company. Uh, that had uh, over 2,000 uh, customers. We actually got acquired a couple of years ago, uh, and we've been rolled in by a private equity firm uh, with another company called Thycotic into an entity called Delinea. But I, I left before that roll-up merger occurred. Um, but I'm also very active uh, in doing angel investing, uh, small seed investments in my own personal money. And I have a, a few cybersecurity investments also in privacy as well. So just like a lot of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, you know, we'd like to give back to other entrepreneurs and give little small amounts of money to, to get some of these companies kickstarted. And then finally, I've been doing a lot of work in technology policy. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that could be done from a, from a law perspective as it relates to cybersecurity as well as privacy. So I volunteered uh, in 2020 to be part of a campaign here in California for Prop 24, which was the California Privacy Rights Act. That's kind of California's equivalent more or less of the GDPR. Yeah. Uh, and then most recently, I worked on a bill in California that I, I proposed and I contributed to called the California Delete Act uh, that just was signed by Governor Newsom. So basically, what I've been doing lately is I've taken this knowledge of cybersecurity and privacy and uh, policy, and I came out with a book as well, just came out recently called Containing Big Tech, uh, and I hope that delivers kind of a clear path forward for readers to to look at the collection of our data, cybersecurity issues, privacy issues, et cetera. Wow, loads. Um, you're keeping busy then, let's just say that. Absolutely. No, it's, it's you know, look, I'm um, able to, at a stage in my life and career that I'm able to dabble in, in, in different things. And, uh, but clearly, you know, always trying to focus um, on, you know, what's best for consumers uh, and just trying to make the world more safe uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, and then also give uh, consumers enhanced privacy as well. So those are kind of the things that I, I like to focus on. Yeah, nice. So with Centrify, obviously every founder's dream to 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 get a hundred mil ARR. I'm gonna dive straight in. What what was the secret sauce? 
Well, the secret sauce was you got to have a, a must-have product. Um, so that's that's the first and foremost thing um, where you you are considered by your customer to be a painkiller versus an aspirin. Um, and a lot of people kind of fool themselves to think like, oh, this is a must-have product uh, when it really isn't. Um, that uh, even to the point where if they don't necessarily have budget for it, that they will try to at least carve out some little budget because it's such a big pain point as well. So that's that's the first thing. The, the, the second thing is, is that you need a good team, right? And I know you're in the business mm. of building teams, but oftentimes I see a lot of entrepreneurs, it's just one person. And they, they come to me and say, hey, I'm looking for a little money to kickstart my my business. And I'm like, well, where's your team? Where's your, where's your, you, you need to at least have one or two other co-founders that have that complement you and have great domain knowledge uh, as well. Because if you get hit by a bus, the whole thing falls apart. Right. Um, and and people do leave. And so you need to have two or three founders um, that that act like a, a great basketball team. They're not all point guards, so they're not all forwards, or I can use maybe use a, a soccer analogy. You just can't have five goalies. You need to have different people in the field uh, right there. And so you need to have a great team there. And then finally, it needs to be a good market, um, big enough, but not too crowded as well. So there's kind of a timing aspect of it as well, because oftentimes I see entrepreneurs saying, oh yeah, we're going after this market. And our competition are these six people that have each raised $100 million, and we're trying to get our first $5 million. And that's going to be a tough road. Even though you have a better mousetrap, um, you know, you, you, it's just going to be too difficult to compete in. And so you also need a situation in which you're timing it where it's the market starting to take off, but there's only one or two other players uh, in the market as well. So those are some of the dynamics that will allow you to hit that product market fit and then be able to sustain growth. And I think most companies stall out at a couple million dollars. And, mm -hmm. and, and you, you need to be in a situation, as you said, to, to be able to scale it up to 100 million so you can have a sizable exit. Nice. Yeah, some brilliant ingredients there to build a successful business. In terms of like preparing founders, particularly for those that are listening to this, like what are going to be some of the sucks or potential challenges, hurdles that they are going to come up against? Well, I think it's uh, the first and foremost, and, and you're in the people business, um, it's like you got to hire the right people and you got to avoid, you got to have a high hit ratio. You can't have a perfect uh, 100% hit ratio, of, uh, 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 but you need to make sure that you have a very high bar um, and that people pass it and then you feel comfortable. Um, and because there's nothing worse than if you hire the wrong person, and then it'll take you six months to discover it. And then you go through the pain and suffering of, of uh, doing that. So I think in the early stage that the amount of vetting that you should do for the initial team should be incredibly high, right? And if you have a little angst or qualms about someone or some doubt, then I, I would go with go with that uh, as well. And, and you, know, you just don't want to be in a situation that you just want to throw bodies because at the early stage of a company, you have limited money, you have limited resources, and you need to show traction right out of the gates, right? And if you hire the wrong sales, first salesperson, you hire the wrong marketing person, et cetera, 
then it can actually kill your company as well. So you could have the best mousetrap, but if you don't have that. So I think that's one aspect of it as well. The second aspect um, is that oftentimes the founders, especially the CEO, through force of personality and their, their contacts, can nail the first five to 10 lighthouse accounts, which is great, right? You need to actually have paying customers. But the, the founder, especially the CEO, needs to realize that you need to make this a scalable business and you need to actually have a knowledge transfer. And so you need to actually hire people that can suck up your knowledge and replicate what you're doing. So you don't have to be on every sales call because at the end of the day, you don't, I'm going to use an analogy. It's like running like a Greek restaurant. You just can't be the, the owner of the restaurant in the back, cooking the food, yeah. being at being at the front, putting putting people in the tables and taking their order. That can scale if you only have five tables, right? And you, you can do everything. But in the end, most cybersecurity companies want to build a chain of Greek restaurants or French restaurants or whatever, whatever. I'm not picking on French or Greek <laughs> or Spanish or, or, or burgers, right? You just, you know, uh, you know, a burger joint, but you want, in the end, your investors, your, your employees will want to go big time and they'll want to have it be franchises. And so you need to, at some point, make sure that you do the transition so that other people can learn how to sell the product so you don't actually have to do it all the time as well. And it's tough for sometimes founders and CEOs to let up uh, because they think they can do it all. And mm -hmm. this is this is not, you're trying to build a chain. You're not trying to build a boutique, high-end, Greek, French, Spanish, yeah. Indian, you know, restaurant. Yeah, I think this ties quite nicely into you being an angel investor. So how many cybersecurity or generally how many companies are you startups you in, invested and what sort of check sizes are you you writing out for for these folks? Yeah, so um so I kind of keep it at around 15 or so. Um and the check sizes uh, for me personally could be as small as 10, 25,000 and sometimes it, it goes up to uh, say a hundred or so thousand yeah. um, out there, but I do it in conjunction with other people as well. And so I have a business partner, Adam, who uh, was one of my co-founders at, at Centrify, and then we loop other people in. So we we try to provide a consortium. Nice. Um, and you know, to be candid, you know the the amount of money. It's a small. These are small investments mm -hmm. to kind of get people kickstarted uh, out there. Um, I don't take a board position, and I'll be you know if people want me to help, etc. So I, I really don't have that much influence, but I'm more than willing to act as a mentor mm -hmm. uh, for uh, the, these co these companies as well. And uh, you know some people, some of the the, the CEOs and founders will want to have me, you know, pick my brain and, and and leverage me. Other people will be, hey, great. I just want to put your name and your logo on the the website as an advisor and and then, you know, go off and do the own. So it really depends on the, the actual CEO. So yeah. it's just really, I think it's kind of equivalent. Like if you had an uncle Larry that wanted to start a, a coffee shop, he would come to you and say, Hey Joseph, can you give me ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars, et cetera? So it's it's super early stage, yeah. uh, but but that is critical. That's the critical part where you're actually trying to figure out can you build that must-have product, right? And and that's a really critical part of the the early uh, stage. How um 
how do you evaluate like what is the investment thesis when you are because it's so early like what are you going on is it is it well, i guess it's it, it the team it's the team it yeah. absolutely it, it's it's really the team and, and it goes back to what i said before if it's yeah. one person what one, one person comes to me uh, a guy or gal comes to me and says hey i've got an idea right and can you give me some money and then, um, and then I say, well, I can only give you a little money. You got to get a bunch of other people to give you some money to kick you, kickstart you. And then, um, and then I say, well, but wait a minute, uh, where are your co-founders? He says, well, I need the money to get the co-founders, right? Well, that means that you're probably not a good salesperson enough because every founder needs to be the founding team needs to be salespeople. Even if your domain knowledge is in engineering or marketing or sales, you've got to attract people. You've got to be honey and you've got to have the bees come to you, right? Um, and so if you can't convince someone else to quit their job and join you in this grand vision, right, and be bought into it and have sweat equity in the business, then the odds are you're probably not going to go to the mat and be able to convince five customers to also sign up, right? You know, so that is the, th that it's so critical in the early stage that there's a team. And again, it's complementary football, it's complementary uh, basketball. You just can't have everyone be a point guard or everyone be a, a, a soccer goalie, et cetera. You need to actually have a mix of people that have great domain knowledge. So in the end, yeah, there's most of the ideas that come to me they haven't developed product. It's mostly like a PowerPoint. Like it's, it's, it's literally slide, it's slideware, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, we think this is a great idea and all that stuff. And so I, I frankly um, prefer like if it's, especially if the, the people are known commodities, like if a friend says, oh, this guy is super smart, he's the expert, or I've worked with this person in the past, I know that they're highly competent and that they've proven that I've got, it's not just me, it's three other people that are doing this and we're working full time, you know, sometimes you even have a situation like, well, I'm only do, doing this part time. I got my day job and then I'm dealing with my kids and I work on this from 11 o'clock to one o'clock in the morning. Well, sorry, you know, that's not going to kickstart it. You got to be, you got to be all in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Can we plug a couple of your cybersecurity um, startups that you work yeah, with? Surf security is one. Yeah. Surf, yeah. Surf security is one. It's uh they're based in Israel. Uh, they're a zero trust browser. Um, and so it's kind of like mobile device management, but doing it from a browser perspective. Um, and so that gives you great ideals of granularity to set policy. There's another one that's based in Europe. Um, it's more of an AI risk management. So it's not necessarily okay. cybersecurity. Uh, it, the company's called Holistic. They're based in London. Yep. Um, and so they'll, they'll analyze algorithms um, and uh, artificial intelligence and tell you if there's risk, not necessarily from a cybersecurity perspective, but if bias can be introduced uh, in them. So uh, that's a great example. Another cybersecurity company uh, is in Europe called Astron. Um, and so they're trying to do uh, encryption of data and, and taking sensitive data, moving it up to the cloud. And then the, another great example is a company called ShareID. They're also yep. based in, in, in France. They're really trying to do kind of next generation 
multi-factor authentication, identity verification without storing the, the personal data you know, up of the cloud. So it's highly secure as well. So those are four oh, examples. Yeah, yeah. I, I picked Europe, European ones. Um, you know, uh, because I know you're you're based yeah, in Europe, yeah, yeah. but but I I obviously invest worldwide. So you got Surf Security, Zero Trust. You've got Holistic AI, that's uh, AI risk management and governance. You've got Astrin, um, that does uh, encryption uh, and sensitive data management, and then you've got Share ID, uh, that does next gen uh, identity verification, multi-factor authentication, etc. Yeah, nice. I'll put those uh, companies in the show notes so people can check them out. Yeah, great company. Even more interestingly, you're heavily involved within the data privacy uh, and policy world. So Prophecy 24, can we talk about that first? Because that was 2020 bill. Yeah. So um, California in 2018, there was a gentleman by the name of Alistair McTaggart. He's a, actually a real estate guy, and he was having, I don't know, cocktails or dinner, and there was a, a person from Google at, at it, I think is at his house, and like the guy from Google kind of fessed up, like you would just be shocked, Alistair, to know of all the data that we have collected on you. And he began doing research uh, on this and he saw that Europe was coming out with GDPR and there was nothing happening in the United States. And so he decided to you know, work with a team of people to write a privacy law that was, uh, and they figured that the best way to get through it because in California, it's the headquarters of all the tech companies, they would oppose it. And so uh, they put a, a ballot initiative together called the California Consumer Privacy Act or CCPA. And they got enough signatures um, to, to have kind of, again, like the GDPR equivalent uh, for California at the state level. And then, um, and then the tech industry lined up against it uh, and what happened is Cambridge Analytica happened in 2018 and they kind of went away. And then the legislature said, oh, this is going to look, we're going to look really stupid if, if such an important bill has to be voted on by the voters. So the legislature quickly voted on it. It passed. It was signed by Governor Brown in 2018. And that was the first state, cal a state law for, for privacy. But then in 2019, the tech industry came back and tried to water it down through the legislature. And then Alistair said nuts to that. And so he came out with another proposition that he took directly to the ballot, Prop 24, which is the mm -hmm. California Privacy Rights Act that amends the CCPA. And it actually sets the privacy law to be a floor versus a ceiling, which means that the legislature can't uh, nuke or you know, water down uh, privacy laws. And then the other interesting thing is it created a privacy agency, kind of like in the UK, the ICO or the DPC in Ireland, uh, a supervisory authority to look at these issues as well. So that passed actually in, in, in 2020. I was a full-time volunteer. I worked a lot on that campaign. And uh, California in the U.S. has the, the most rich and robust privacy law. And now 11 other states have followed California. Unfortunately, we still don't have a national privacy law like people in, in Europe have with uh, GDPR. What was the most recent? Uh, is it the, the, the Delete Act that you've? Yes. So, um, so in California, you've got two ways to get laws on the books. So uh, in the case of 
uh, Prop 24, it was a proposition, and then you have to gather enough signatures, and it's actually put on the ballot, right? Um, and that kind of goes back to the progressive era in the U.S., uh, there was a guy, Hiram Johnson, at the turn of the century in, in California that allowed direct democracy, that you could just vote on things, kind of like maybe Brexit, for example, mm -hmm. right? And so every year we probably have five to ten ballot initiatives – or every voting year uh, we have five to ten ballot initiatives, and that's how Prop 24. The other way, of course, is to go through the legislature, right? And, um, and so I actually have a state senator, uh, Senator Becker who I'm a constituent of, and I know him, and I said, hey, we have this big problem with these third parties collecting our data uh, called data brokers in the US, and they, buy, they collect our data without our knowledge, they scrape it up, uh, and then they sell it. And a lot of this data is very sensitive personal data. And then what happened in the US is that we had the overturn of Roe v. Wade, and so now we have a situation in the US in which um, certain states, uh, what was legal before is now illegal. And based on your online activity, your searches, your geolocation, like if you, you visit a reproductive healthcare, is now illegal. And so, and then, but you have this huge ecosystem of these data brokers buying and selling your data. And it's like virtually impossible to get your data deleted. So I had this idea to provide a, a means and mechanism for consumers to go to a, a website operated by this California Privacy Protection Agency where they could go and then say, please, data brokers, delete my information. And so that was Senate Bill 362. So I proposed it to Senator Becker. I was very fortunate to work with a big team. I, 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 I drafted a little bit of it and uh, I contributed and I helped uh, where needed. At the end of the day, it was Senator Becker's bill. He, he deserves yeah. full credit and, uh, and 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 Governor Newsom signed it, but it just was passed and signed by Governor Newsom like a week and a half ago or so yeah. as we record this. So this is going to be kind of the first law of its type. It's it's kind of the equivalent of the FTC's do not call registry for telemarketers that you can get, mm -hmm. get your name off the telemarketer list. I don't know if you have stuff similar like yeah. that in, in the UK, but this is what we have. Uh, this is what we'll have in California in a couple of years. Unbelievable. Out of curiosity, how, how big of a business was that data brokering? It's a huge business. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not was. It, it yeah, is. yeah, it still um, is. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's a 200 billion plus industry with hundreds, if not thousands, et cetera. And uh, look, I, this is it, it's it's all about like, say, for example, um, you're a, a victim of identity fraud, right? And you want to get your data deleted um, from all these websites that have your information, as well as other people that have your sensitive information. Or say you're a victim of domestic violence and your abuser, you don't want that abuser to track you down in your current address, right? And so really what you need to think about it is, is that it's basically impossible for a consumer to, to go, first of all, you don't even know who these people are. But the second thing is then you have to say you get a list of 500 and California did have a data broker registry and there was 527 registered. You would have to first start with Aardvark and then kind of work your way down the list. And it may take 30 minutes of for each one with follow up and all that stuff. So if you wanted to get your data deleted 
from data brokers, it may take you 30 times 527. That's the equivalent of 10 days to get your data deleted. And if you're a domestic violence uh, survivor, it's just terrible that you don't have that. And then the funny thing is, is that once you get your data deleted, they can just keep on collecting your data because it's a one-time deletion. So you have to rinse and repeat. And so really the best way to look at this is it's really about protecting consumers and giving them the right to be left alone. And and actually privacy is in the California constitution, right? It's an inalienable right. And so this is simply just a fulfillment uh, of the ability to empower consumers to protect their data. And as we know, because I know you focus on cybersecurity, it's a huge issue. Too much data sloshing around about us makes it too easy for that data to be stolen. Yeah, well, let's plug the book. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book that's re- recently come out? Absolutely. I happen to have a copy right here. Uh, it's uh, it's called Containing Big Tech. You can go to my website, tomkemp.ai, T-O-M-K-E-M-P.ai, or you can just go directly to con- the domain containingbigtech.com. That will actually uh, put you over into the Amazon page. And so what I try to do is is that I try to like build, I try to write a book that you could give it to your uncle Larry or someone that's really smart that like god I know there's issues with privacy I know like what's this AI thing um etc like what's TikTok um and so I try to like do it to more of a general audience which is like here are the issues that we face as a society with the over collection of our data how the large tech firms use that data to facilitate advertising, behavioral advertising, how the collection of that data is actually increasingly being weaponized or used against us to like discriminate against us or, or to, you know, that people can buy this data or, or get access to this data. And then I talk about how this data is increasingly being fed into AI, right? And so, you know, we always talk about, I mean, there's a lot of you know, artists and musicians are like, hey, I don't want AI to steal my painting or my song and then morph it. But what about us? Our our copyright material is our face, our voice, our biometrics, our, you know, we don't want to be, you know, it'd be super scary. Like I'm on a website and all of a sudden a virtual Tom Kemp pops up and says, you really need to buy more, you know, aspirin, right? Like that would be like super freaky, right? But we should have our, our sensitive information should be copyrighted to us and we shouldn't allow AI to do that. So I really talk a lot about how the large tech players are, are using AI, what are the benefits, but what are some of the risks and challenges? And then I talk about the fact that some of these entities are such huge monopolies um, that it actually exasperates some of the cybersecurity and privacy issues we have. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I'm really encouraged people to get the book. If you was to highlight one particular area of it that you found like really insightful, what sort of teaser can you can you give the audience? Yeah, I, I really think uh, it's um, that a lot of the tech players, especially in the U.S. as it relates to abortion related data, that they've actually made promises like, oh, we're not going to collect it. We're going to delete it, et cetera. And through my research, I was able to actually discover that what they said was not true, right? Um, and the Guardian picked this up, uh, you know, some of my research up, and there was stuff pu- uh, published in the Washington Post. And so, what I'm trying to do is say that, you know, 
like when people say like when something gets on the internet, it's forever, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with your personal data. And so I actually walk people through like this is still happening, even though they say they'll delete it, they don't delete it. But then I try to give uh, consumers actionable ways that they can reduce their data footprint. So I think the big takeaway is it's not all doom and gloom. I actually try to empower consumers to like reduce their data footprint to make themselves more secure, uh, to enhance their privacy. I even talk about like, hey, you need to, as consumers, you need to turn on multi-factor authentication, right? You know, to protect yourself as well. So I'm, I'm really trying to not lay out the issues, but I'm trying to provide solutions that consumers can do, but also what policymakers can do in potential laws. Nice. What I uh, think might be a good idea is if any of the audience reach out to me directly, I will personally get them uh, a copy of of the book. So that would be a promise from me. Any of the audience that reach out, I'll uh, I'll purchase the book for them. Um, Tom, how do you want to uh, finish this up? Well, what's the future for you, man? Well, to be determined. I mean, so the the big things that I worked on for the last uh, year was this bill in California and working on the book. Uh, I, I still work with entrepreneurs. And so, uh, and, and look, I my, my goal is I want the world to be safer from, from hackers, right? And so there, there's different ways you can do that. And one way is that there's some companies that are building innovative products that I'm more in, if they got a great product, I'm more than happy to spend time, you know, with these companies and give them some free advice. You get what you pay for. Uh, you know, in some cases I, I may say, Hey, they need a little money to kickstart, uh, them. Um, so just, I think I'm at a stage right now where I, I've seen firsthand, you know, the, the, the bad things that could happen, you know, with, with, too much data out there, hackers getting it, et cetera. So I'm just trying to find different ways through entrepreneurism, uh, through advice, through legislation, et cetera, just to uh, protect people because the reality is, is that, uh, you know, more needs to be done in this area as well. And I'm, I'm really encouraged the work that you're doing is supporting companies that are just focused more on the cybersecurity area and so I think that's a worthwhile, like of all the sectors within software, et cetera, you know, we need more security. And it's it's great to, to see the, the type of companies that you're supporting uh, that are trying to build great platforms to make both consumers and businesses more secure. So that's a no, to me, that's very noble. Awesome. Tom, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, I wish you all the best of success for what's next. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed today's show, please like and share with your friends and colleagues as this is really important for the show's reach. If you'd like to be our next guest or are interested in Aspron Search's staffing solutions, please get in touch directly with me or reach out to us via our website www.aspronsearch.com.